says, get that India, big boy. Good evening, everyone, and thanks for joining us here in Paraleagues as we celebrate a Big Eels victory. How good is winning? Uh, before we dive into that, though, huge thanks to Paraleagues for supporting what we do here on the tip sheet and at the Cumberland Throw. Paraleagues is the home of the Eels, and it's the place to be for home and away games uh, when it comes to the blonde gold. Also, 60s, quick shout out to our sponsors, Big Swing Golf, North Mead, Star Partners, Norell and Auburn and Parramatta, making the tip sheet happen week in and week out. Let's get into it, mate. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, tonight we have a special guest to help us out with our takes. It's hard to know where to begin with this bloke. His rugby league career is in the elite class. He's been involved in an off-field capacity when he headed up the match review committee. He's been in the corporate world, in the media, and he's a wonderful philanthropist to boot. Ladies and gentlemen, please help us welcome Michael Butner. Thank you, boys. Absolute pleasure to be here, and what a great win for the Eels tonight. Uh, fantastic effort, and uh, I'm sure you're all very happy. To those that are here not to listen to me, I apologise, but you're going to have to put up with me for the next 20 minutes or so. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, we will keep the match on there, uh, but you're going to have to listen to us. So uh, we'll, we'll press ahead. Uh, now, before we start... Uh, on the, what actually happened tonight in the game. And before we dive into your career, Mick, you have to fill us in on the story about a certain Heinz Butner. Yeah, well, obviously, Butner being a German background, or German, my father was German, and uh, my mum wanted to call me Heinz. She's English, Australian. She wanted to call me Heinz, and thankfully my dad said that he was going to be born here in Australia, therefore he should have an Australian name. So I could only imagine what or how horrible it would have been if I was called Heinz. I don't know whether I would have actually gone on to have a footy career because I probably would have been hammered at school in terms of <laughs> bashed, uh, bullied and everything else like that. So very fortunate that it didn't eventuate um, and that sanity prevailed when it came to... <laughs> my first and second name, which is Michael John. So the Heinz can be put to bed, thankfully. Um, so yeah, it's a uh, German background and that's where it comes from. Is that, uh, do we pronounce your surname correctly or is that like an anglicised version of what it should be pronounced like? Mate, I'm happy everybody's called me that for the last 49 years. I'm not about to change it now. <laughs> <laughs> 60s match in that you're a para junior, obviously, had a long historic career with the Eels. But you came through the Cabravale Cobras, which is a club that we've actually had a chance to sit down and talk to 60s in our para stories as the Canleyvale Cookers. You were also the first captain of an Australian sports high school. Did it feel special to progress to senior football as a local footballer, or was that something you reflected more on later in your post-playing career? Uh, look, to be honest with you, I, didn't, I, I never expected to play professionally. It probably wasn't even an era, a thing that come across my thinking until I was probably about 17. I made my first junior rep team as a 16-year-old. Uh, 17, I played unders in terms of the rep team. The following year, I was playing first grade. So things happened really quickly very, for very me. Very, very quickly. And I, I do remember that, you know, when I made the Australian schoolboys side, the year before, the furthest I'd gone was basically three 
steps in like a seven or eight stage pro a process. So, but I remember saying to my mates who at school, knowing that the Australian schoolboy side was going to England, that I'll get on that tour. And I don't know why I said that, but... Um, <laughs> the confidence of youth. Maybe it was confidence, maybe it was arrogance, maybe it was just me full of shit, I don't know. But either way, um, it was one of those things. And as it turned out, not only did I get selected in that side, I ended up captaining the side mm -hmm. over in England. We went on an undefeated tour, which was amazing. I guess it probably gave me confidence to believe that I could then come back and play. Look, I've got to say, when I came back, my plan was just to play... Um, under-21s the following year and secure a spot in that team. I remember my first trial match for the season in 1992. I was meant to play 21s. I got a call at about 8 o'clock in the morning saying we need you for reserve grade. And it was, for West, it was against Western Suburbs. And i got to tell you, we were playing against guys with full-grown beards. <laughs> I was 18. I was absolutely shitting myself. And on that day, I ended up scoring three tries. I think it was through fear alone. I just didn't want to get tackled. I didn't want to get hurt. One of the most powerful performances in history. Yes, correct. <laughs> it was just, give me the ball, I'll run, but please don't tackle me. So I started the season in reserve grade, had three games there. Peter Sterling, uh, club legend, who uh, did his shoulder in round three of that season. I made my, de uh, my, made my debut in round four, 1992. So my claim to fame is I replaced Peter Sterling. Mm -hmm. And I'm running with it. <laughs> <laughs> Were you ready for, a fir for playing first grade as a teenager? Not a chance in the world. Physically, I was nowhere near where I needed to be. Uh, you know, you look at the players now and physically how strong they are and how um, capable they are to be able to cope with the week-to-week the -week contest. I was probably nowhere near physically but I think I had enough skill to get me by. And we'll probably, you know, to be fair to the side that I played in over those three or four seasons, we weren't travelling too well. So they probably persevered with me and I'm, you know, probably grateful for the fact that Mick Cronin and um, Mick Cronin gave me that opportunity initially and then Ron Hildich and, of course, Ron Massey, who was there with Mick Cronin, gave me that opportunity and they persevered with me uh, and were very patient with... Me and, you know, I learned a lot from those guys. But, yeah, I, I wasn't ready for first grade. I know that. I just... But I wasn't going to knock back the opportunity. And as it turned out, I, I played the, the entire season, all 19 games, from the time I made my debut, I finished out the whole, entire season. So I was clearly doing something right. <laughs> Talk to us about that game against the touring Great Britain team. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a big moment. It was in 92 and they'd come out. We obviously had... Pre-game, the race, Martin Fire versus Lee Odenine, which was a massive uh, uh, talked-about subject. And Lee Odenine getting the jump cash. Early? Did of Lee course, jump he jumped early. <laughs> they had it all planned. Ready, set, go. Oh, and he'd already <laughs> taken off. But it was okay. He got the cash, which was important. But it was funny because here I was playing against the touring Great Britain side, the likes of Gary Schofield, you know, Great Britain's best. And it was only six months earlier that I was playing against their schoolboy team. So it was a really big, you know, I guess, thrown in the deep end type moment for me. It was, in fact, the first time that I'd scored for Parramatta in first grade as well. So it was a really significant moment for me to actually enjoy that game. We got the, we got the win, and I do remember 
the crowd that night because they were so boisterous. There was there was absolutely chock a block, and we were the only side to beat the touring Great Britain side, apart from Australia, the only uh, club team to beat them. So it was a big moment. It was a, a really good experience for me as a young guy coming into first grade. You know, it was a really good experience for us in the crowd as well because the touring Pommy supporters were singing in the stands, so it gave that great atmosphere for the for the match. It was it was beyond just a normal match at Parramatta Stadium. It, it, it's one of the things that I recall most of all about the game was the atmosphere, was actually trying to communicate with your players and you're not being able to hear them at all just because the a crowd was noise. so mm. loud. Like, it was phenomenal. Um, you know, there was probably 25, whatever whatever the capacity was, it was chock-a-block and they were letting themselves be heard. So that was a real highlight of the of your time at Parramatta because it was pretty... There were some lean years in those early to mid-90s at Parramatta. What did you actually learn from your first four years at the Eels? Apart from losing, uh, gracefully, um, <laughs> it was... Look, you know what? I learned to. I learned what it took to play first grade on a regular basis, and the intensity required, the effort required. Look, I come back from my first preseason. I was ten kilos overweight, and I had to work really hard to get back down to what you know a playing weight that I could compete at. And it made me realise that you know you can't get by on, you know, without effort, without hard work. So I managed to do that, um, and you know there was, you know we had a game where, you know we played Canberra down in, down in Canberra, and it was a horrible day. It was. I think uh, we all remember that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was 68 nil. We played against a side that were, on paper, I think there was all but one international, competing for the Raiders, um, and I was actually telling the story over at the stadium tonight, and I was going through the team. And I said, oh, they had Gary Belcher, uh, Noah Nandruku, Brett Mullins on the wing. They had Ruben Wickey in the centre, Laurie Daly. And I can't remember who that other centre was. I, I was trying to uh, remember it, who it was. It, it might have been um, Ruben Wickey. Nah, nah, it was a guy called Mal Meninga. He went, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. He went okay, apparently. Some chump named yeah, Mal yeah, Mal some chump called <laughs> Mal, Mal Meninga, yeah. So, you know, they got Ricky Shaw, Brad Clyde. David yeah. Ferner, you just, you, you name him. One, one, the, one of the most stacked teams of all time. Lomax, yeah. Quentin Ponga, mm-hmm. Steve Walters. It was just phenomenal. So we'll I be, need to learn to play the straight man a bit better, don't I, when yeah. you're beating the line. <laughs> yeah. what, I, what, I, what I do recall from that game is that we were down, it was about 38-0, and we were behind the line saying, OK, let's not let it get to 40. They got the 40. Let's not let it get to 50. Shit, they got the 50. <laughs> let's, not him, let's not let him get to 60. Right, they got the 60. Let's not, him, let's not let him get to 70. True to form, we didn't let him get to 70. Success. That's good. Success. Let, let it be said that no one ever there. put 70 on him. Nah, that's, that's right. Isn't that one of the things about uh, achievable goals? You achievable, yeah, correct. We were, we were being so unrealistic. 30, 40, 50, 60, that was ridiculous. 70 was the limit. So in those first years of Parramatta, you learn about the work ethic to be a first grader. You made the jump to the Bears. That brought greater success both representative honours and finals football. How good was that Bears team? Because I know my mum had a soft spot for them. And what changed about you as a player during that time? How different was finals football to regular like, premiership rounds in that era? I've got to say, you know, and again, I was talking about it over there, about 
You talk about finals football and how exciting it was. I went to Allianz Stadium probably about four weeks ago. And the people I was with, I actually told them about the fact that this was the home of semi-final football. This is where you came in September to play football. And if you weren't there in September, you weren't in finals. That's as simple as it was. So it was always a special place to go, especially, you know, that September month when the war, you know, the warmer months kicking yep. in. It's just a great time to play footy. Um, that bear side was amazing. You know, that whole four years that I had there, it was probably the best four years in terms of a, a, a solid time frame that I had as a player. Um, but it's easy to be a good player in a side when you've got the likes of Jason Taylor, Matt Sears, Ben Eichen, Brett Dallas, Gary Larson, Billy Moore, David Fairley. You know, you can just keep rattling names. You know what, we'll probably, if you go through the 90s, we're probably the unluckiest team not to win a comp. Yeah. And I know winning a comp is not about luck, but it was one of those things where we were very unfortunate not to have got ourselves not only in a grand final, but to actually to win, win it. it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, who tackles Matt Sears when he's out in the clear? Darren Albert. Yeah. That's who does. <laughs> and, you know, what? a lot of people forget that. He scored that try in the grand final 97. And I'm sitting at home watching that. And it broke my heart to see. And I was happy for the Knights. Don't get me wrong, because I hate Manly. But I was happy for the Knights to, to win the game. But I knew the significance of that tackle that he made on Matt Sears the week before. That was the difference between us making the grand final and not making the grand final. So that was hard to deal with, hard to cope with. And that was probably... Yeah, our time at the Bears, probably our best chance to uh, take out a premiership, I think. 96, we were good, and I it was my first final series, and I didn't know how to take it, to be honest. And, and I probably um, didn't really feel the pain of the loss in the preliminary final to St. George, because, again, I expected us to be there the following year and the year after that. The Newcastle thing really hurt, really hurt. We won't mention the Northern Eagles because... I hate Manly. Yeah. yeah gotcha. <laughs> Good man. Good man. <laughs> but you're back at Parramatta in 2001. And when you've come back, it's the club's in a completely different shape. What were the main differences that you noticed when you returned that year? Uh, look, the, the game had evolved from when I left Parramatta in 95... 96, 97, the game started to become professional. And when I mean professional, players got paid more money. That was the extent of it. I don't think as a game we knew what that meant. Um, and then we then got to the point where coming back in 01, I could see that the club was so professional. I could see that, you know, when I come back to training, um, I got tested on everything and I had to work on certain elements of my body to ensure that I was well-rounded, that I wasn't going to suffer injuries. And that was something that I'd never had any sort of assessment at other clubs. So for me, that was a big thing. Um, and I know we're going to touch on Brian Smith, but to have a coach and the coaching staff that Brian Smith had around him was just amazing. I'd played nine, nine years of first grade. For me, it was like going back to school and learning how to play rugby league. I learned how to catch the ball, how to pass, how to run, how to tackle, how to hold the ball. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but he broke it down that much, the game, that it just opened my eyes. And I wish that I had 
the opportunity to be coached by Brian Smith, you know, five, six, seven years earlier in my career because I think I may have been a better player uh, based on what I learned from him. So let's talk more about Smithy because younger fans of the game will probably know him for his reputation of being the club rebuilder rather than being a premiership caliber coach. What was he like as a coach, like in depth, I suppose? He was very technical. He was very smart. Probably at times too smart and maybe outsmarted players or try to outsmart players. But in the main, when you think about what he did as a coach for this club, it's pretty significant. And whilst, you know, we didn't get to, um, you know, that ultimate glory, um, what he managed to do and is not unlike what Craig Bellamy is doing at the Storm. It's not unlike what Trent Robinson is doing at the Roosters. It's not unlike, um, you know, what a Wayne Bennett can do for his teams. Okay, difference is these guys have had, those other guys that I mentioned, were able to get... That one, know, that, one that, last step, right? Yep, correct. Yeah. You know, the Holy Grail. Uh, unfortunately for Brian, he wasn't able to get that, and I'm sure, you know, he tosses and turns at night thinking about what it is. But he could take an ordinary player and turn them into an extraordinary player. And that was evident by the amount of players that left Parramatta because they couldn't keep them all. They couldn't afford to keep them all. He turned a $100,000 player into a $250,000 player. He turned a $150,000 player into a $400,000 player. He had that ability because of the way he broke down the game, the way he analysed it, and the way that he made you accountable for what you were doing. Very so, well said. Why couldn't, why couldn't that 2001 team or I guess any of the teams that were under Brian Smith's care, take that final step to win a title. I mean, it's obviously, it is a hard thing yeah, to win yeah. a premiership. We've been waiting nearly 40 years I, to, to I, get I, our, yeah. our next premiership. I, I would imagine if Brian was able to work that out, he would have done it after 92. Yeah. Because 93, he got done by the Broncos again at the Dragons. Yeah. And then he would have had that formula right. And look... Uh, you know, you can look at, and it's probably what makes winning a premiership so special. It probably what makes the Wayne Bennett's of the game so bloody awesome in terms of what they've managed to achieve. You know, the likes of a Kevin Walters, who won six premierships. You know, that is just absolutely phenomenal. Uh, the likes of a Glenn Lazarus, who did it three times at different clubs, the, you know, different clubs mm -hmm. and it was their first time that that club won premierships. But those sort of milestones, achievements are really significant. Um, and I guess if it was an easy formula, then every coach would work it out and, and get the job done. But it is tough, and I, and I don't have the answer, to be honest with you. What I do know in 01 is that we went into the game extremely confident, as we should have. And I don't think we we're overconfident at all. Um, we went into the game extremely confident. They just had a game plan in that first half that absolutely blew us off the park. And we, I've got to say, we went in at half-time. Despite the fact we were down 24-0, we honestly believed that we could come back and win. Well, right, there was that belief there. There's no doubt about it. Um, and I know we got close. And I look at that try to Tamanatahu where mm -hmm. the ball, there was a kick and it bounced and it could have bounced a hundred different ways, but it just basically landed flat, bounced up, and he scores a try on his knees. Like, it's just, um, you know what, when the planets are aligned and things are going for you, 
as it was on that night. That's how it worked up. Andrew Ryan gets held up over the line yeah. by Steve Simpson. I don't know how the hell he managed to do that, but he did. Um, and there's other moments. I know in the first half again, there was a pass to Luke Bird that was just in front of him and in the far corner. So there's all those little moments that we just missed the kick, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, when I look back on the season, we're still to this day the, you know, the best attacking side that's ever played the game. That's something that I can look back on and go, you know what, I was a part of that team. And we'll look, on, look back on that until such time as that record gets beaten. And I know it was close a couple of years ago with the Storm, but they didn't quite get there. And you know what? As, as a supporter up in the stands that year, it was an exciting year to watch. It really was. Like, the entertainment value was just off the charts. Yeah. I've got to say, like, you know, every now and then my kids will put up, you know, the highlights package of that year. And I watched the footy, um, and it actually blows me away at how good it was. Yeah. And I look at it now and I go, you know what? That side there could fit into the modern-day game yes. and still be as exciting, yep. if not more exciting. Um, just the way the game's progressed and developed. But that was a unique group of players that managed to come together for that one season and did some amazing things. Unfortunately, we just missed the big one. And I, and I know that if we played Newcastle another nine times after that game, we would have beaten them nine times. Yeah, yep. that, that season and that game really encapsulated the tragedy and triumph of sports in one go. It was an incredible ride that you just needed that one more set, that five more minutes of, of game time and you, you run them down. Yeah, it would have been nice. It would have been nice. So after Parramatta, you retire after spending two years with a young Tigers team. Uh, you then reflect back on your career. 263 first grade games, 129 of those with Parramatta, 96 tries. That's a pretty handy strike rate. 77 goals. You repped Australia, New South Wales during era of both high and lows with Parramatta and the game itself. What are you most proud of across that glittering, glittering, glittering uh, career, mate? You know what? I'm probably most proud of the fact that, for me, one of the key aspects of anybody that plays any sport is longevity. Mm -hmm. And I had 13 seasons at the top level. And I know that, you know, the average player will play 30-odd, 40-odd first-grade games. And I played in an era that... I was very fortunate to play in an era where there was absolute champions playing the game. I could rattle off names forever and a day about players that I played against and with. Well, just the Canberra and Bears and 01 team that you've already Correct. mentioned, it's... Like there's enough company, there, isn't right? it? And yeah. then you got the Broncos team, right? <laughs> Who were okay as well, but it was like it was just an era where there was absolute legends of the game. That real, a real golden age for correct. NRL. Yeah. And so for me to be able to compete uh, and to compete for as long as I did throughout that time is probably what I'm proudest of. You know, I, I prided myself on uh, being as fit, strong. Uh, and playing as many games as I could each and every season. And, you know, to play 13 seasons, to play 263, that average is out at 20 games a year. And bear in mind that my last two seasons I only played 16 games through injury. I go, you know what, I would have been close to that 300 magic mark, mm -hmm. which would have really got me up there. And, you know, even t I, I think today I'm still in the top 100 or 150 guys to have ever played the most amount of games in the NRL and I go, you know what, that's something that yeah, I'm extremely proud of. You can definitely hang your hat on that one. 
uh, I have to ask you, because you had that time in the match review committee, I want to ask you now about this, the hip drop tackles. Are hip drop tackles a recent phenomena? Were there tackles similar to that when you were playing or similar to that during your time heading up the match review committee? I don't think there were tackles similar to that when I was playing, only because the tackle technique with players now mm-hmm. is different to what it was back when I was playing. Right, we'll see a lot of players catch and hold. You know, I go back to when I first started, there was still the reward for low tackles. Um, it was a different game. It flowed quicker. The players weren't anywhere near as fit as what they are these days. So from that end, yeah, it wasn't in, in the game when I was playing. I also look at the modern game and there's a lot of wrestling technique that's been involved or introduced into the game. And that's probably happened over the last 15 years. So when you're thinking about what you're trying to do as a wrestler or how you're going to try and get somebody down on the ground, the best way to do that is to drop your body weight, right? So players are starting to realise that. Whereas I go back to when I started playing and even towards the back end when I was finishing, it was still about driving with your shoulder, okay? Now it's about absorbing, taking them down on the ground, okay? That's the big difference for me. So I look at that and I go... These players have learnt this technique over time. And I'm not here to suggest they're learning the hip drop. What they're learning is the practice of dropping your body weight. So when they find themselves in a position when they're holding on to somebody, they then drop their body weight, there's a chance that it's going on somebody's legs. And when I was in the match review committee, we started to identify with John Bateman and the other back rower from Canberra. The other English back row, and his name eludes me at the moment. Um, but those two guys there, um, we could see it coming in. This was probably about five years ago. And it started to creep in a lot more now. Um, and look, I think it's very hard for players to, to try and steer away from it because it's such a learned behaviour in terms of what they've done from their wrestling technique. Players are going to have to adjust and think about what they've got to do now to get that right. And uh, you so know, is it a case of muscle memory then? That that hundred percent it is. You know, rather than a rather than a learnt tackle technique, it's muscle memory. Hey, we saw it with the. I remember we saw it with the crusher tackle, right? Yep. I, I used to look at it and go, "Oh, these players are, you know, they're locking and they're holding and they're yep. hitting the head player of the head uh, the head of the player." And I used to think, "Wow, that's just part of footy, taking the player to the ground." Then I started to realise it's actually a learned behaviour. They're actually learning these techniques, how to get him in a hold, how to bring him down on the ground, how to apply pressure. You apply pressure to the neck in a tackle, that person's going to succumb. Right? Yep. So we had to clamp down on that, and we clamped down on it hard. And, and this is what the NRL is doing right now. Um, it's a bit of a balance, and it's always tough when you are making adjustments on the run. But it's one of those things that really need to be, be addressed. We've seen Campbell Gillard... You know, cop a serious injury on the back of one. Uh, we saw Jackson Hastings last year break a leg due to that type of tackle. This stuff is going to happen. And you know what? They've got to do something to try and avoid it. One of the big flashpoints out of Parramatta's loss to Brisbane up in Darwin was the hip drops. In a game where we saw Ezra Mam and Jermaine Hopgood symbiont, the Payne Haas tackle on Reagan Campbell-Gillard wasn't even a penalty. What was your take on that one? Was this the case of the system getting it wrong given he was charged in the wake of it? Look, I think... 
I have concerns about, you know, the identification of the person in the bunker and what their understanding and knowledge is, okay? If they're an ex-referee, they will know the rules. And I'm not here to suggest that they don't know some of the indicators. But for me, the best person to adjudicate on that type of incident is someone who's been in there at the match review level, right? And it's not an easy process. And I can assure you, every time we make a decision, we're not throwing a dart at a dartboard, tossing a coin, going, what do we do here? It's actually a really thought out process. Um, so from that end, there needs to be more understanding about what the indicators are, what the, you know, what, what you're looking at from the player's perspective, what you're looking at from the you know, defending player's perspective, whether it's worthy of a simbin, whether it's worthy of you know, being a play on, a penalty sufficient, all these things. And this all has to happen within 15 to 20 seconds. Right? So if you don't have a, a thorough knowledge of all those indicators, then it, you're not going to get it right. Okay? And I'm not here to suggest a highly qualified person will get it right all the time, but they're better chance of getting a greater level of consistency with it. One of the things that Craig and I always say is as much as we gripe around officials, because as a fan you're always complaining, rugby league is one of the tougher games to officiate because it's so fast. So, yeah, without a shit of a doubt, it is hard to officiate. And these guys are making thousands upon thousands of decisions each and every game. Um, you know what? They're human. They're going to make mistakes. Mick, you're, you're actually in a, a fairly unique club. Uh, players dispatched to the sin bin twice in one game. The old Victor Radley fan club. You never <laughs> mentioned that in the highlights of your career. <laughs> no, it was... I've got to say, I, I'd never been sent off in my career. <laughs> but that night up in Newcastle, I was pretty damn close, I've got to say, because I gave... I got sin bin by Bill Harrigan. He had felt that we had gone out there with a game plan to hold Newcastle down. So, in the second half... Anybody that was looking like they were holding somebody down got put in the sin bin, right? <laughs> and Bill Harrigan is my... I work with Bill Harrigan at Australian Oztag now, and I remind him of the fact that he got rested the following week. I didn't. <laughs> so, so I don't know who was in the wrong there, but I dare say he got rested or stood down. But either way, um, it was a frustrating game. I got sin bin. I'm sitting in the sim bin, waiting to go back out. Hindy rocks in. I go out. Dykesy goes in. <laughs> Hindy comes out. And we're still in the contest. Yeah. I think it's like 16-12. I don't know. It's a really close game. And we got a... Well, I thought we got a tough decision. And I gave the uh, touch judge an almighty serve. Like, it was a hell, a hell of a lot of expletives. And, in fact, they used the audio from that to for all the referees in what they shouldn't accept in relation to on-field abuse. So, there's a claim to fame. Yeah, yeah, there's a claim to fame. Well, so, You've got to get them positive out of a negative. Yeah, yeah correct. Right? Exactly right. But as Bill Harrigan called me out, I'm thinking, I'm about to go here. I am in all sorts because it was up there with the best of them. Um, thankfully, he said, all he said to me was, you abused the guy who's wearing the same shirt as me. You've got to go. <laughs> I said, OK, no problem. I was actually relieved to get 10 minutes in the sim bin. Hollywood, obviously, one of the great whistleblowers in the history of the game. Who had the best run-ins with him? Because I remember Gordon Towers, the Raging Bull, used to get in his face 
every now and then. Who, who are the good ones for a bowl up at Hollywood? Oh, look, Gordy, obviously Gordy. Bob Fulton, the late and great Bob Fulton. Didn't mind uh, talking about having a truck. I think it was a truck run him over or something along those lines. <laughs> Billy, <laughs> Billy was a very good referee. <laughs> and in fact, you know what, I, I look, you know, he probably, I don't know when he finished, probably 10, 15 years ago. But he's still regarded now as the best referee. And, and his record is, I won't say it's second to none because, um, you know, Jared Sutton's there or thereabouts. Benny Cummins has refereed lots of games, but he was the most, I think, dominant, strongest referee with his views, his opinions, um, and and nothing would sway the way that he thought and went about his process. So uh, for that, and he was very well respected by the players. Very well said. 60s mentioned that you do plenty of good work, mate, and we want to talk about pass it on clothing. We want to use the term charity because you use the term friends when you've talked about the recipients of the clothing. So maybe you could just talk about everyone here about the importance of treating the homeless and everyone that's doing it tough with a bit of respect and common decency. Uh, look, you know, it's, it's one of those causes where um, I probably got more out of it than they did um, in terms of, you know, being able to create an environment for somebody who is doing it tough or falling on hard times and just need some consistency in their life and they've been let down enough times by other support services so it was one of those things and to be honest with you the clothes basically become a vehicle to create community and to create the ability to communicate and interact with these people and to make them feel you know in inverted commas normal for that hour of the day and our goal was and I uh, me and my mate Chris, who, who still runs the organisation in Martin Place, he, we did this sleepover. We, we went on the streets for two nights. We did the train up to Newcastle and back, which was horrible. We did the, uh, the cardboard mattress in the city there one night. And again, that was horrible. And it just put in perspective how hard it is for these people. Um, but throughout that two nights that we were doing that, we had some of our friends that we service come to see us, come to visit us. And it actually boosted us up and it made us feel really good about, well, it just gave us a little bit of energy. So what it made us realise is that when we do our service, is that we need to make it the best hour of their day. Maybe the best hour of their week and quite possibly the best hour of their month. And that's how significant it became. And it was a little simple mantra, but it was effective. And it just meant that uh, these people benefited from the clothes that we gave them but they benefited more from having consistency in their life with someone coming up who actually gave a shit about yep. what was happening in their world. Well said, mate. Mick, just tying all of that um, life and helping people and football together, what sort of core values overlap, in, core values in football, core values in life? You know what, it's interesting. I think a lot of players will underestimate because it's just as a God-given talent that we're given and that you go about playing footy and you're fortunate enough, they probably underestimate the skill set that comes with that. You know, the commitment, the drive, the determination, the ability to work in a team environment, um, backing up week to week, the highs, the lows, the criticism that comes with it, um, the professional nature, time management. 
how they work everything into their world. So there's a lot of things there that come into play in terms of being a professional athlete. If you could take that skill set and take that into your life after footy, then you're going to have success. Um, and that's as simple as it is. And, and I'm not talking about financially successful. I'm just talking about your life is going to be fulfilled. It's going to be one of those things where you um, are going to be satisfied with what you've got in your life. And so, you know, I would suggest that if I was to break it down into three things, I think time management is one. I think perseverance is another. And I think just that grit and determination, that never say die attitude that you get because you've just got to push yourself at times no matter what's in front of you. And we've all, you know, every player that's played the game would have had one of those games where they are hurting, where they just want to put their hand up and get off the field. But they keep going and they keep working and they manage to get a second, third, fourth win. And we probably had one of the best here at our, at our club in Nathan Hindmarsh who had that ability just to push himself beyond what mere mortals could do. But he just had that ability just keep doing it and keep doing it. And he's gone on to a, an amazing career after his footy career. And I know he gets mocked a hell of a lot, but um, i got to tell you, he wasn't that funny when he was playing. <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah. he's a bloody good actor. That's all I know. <laughs> so we'll wrap up on a lighter note after those sage words there, Mick. We've been involved with the junior reps for a number of years now, and this year we had the... Uh, wonderful opportunity to see one young Lockie Vella running around in the Harold Mats. His old man Mick, well, funniest bloke and biggest pest are two sides of the same coin often. And uh, I've heard contrasting stories when it comes to old uh, Michael Vella. You got any good stories when it comes to the big man? There's a couple of things about Mick and you know what, yeah, pest is one of them. <laughs> Great bloke is another. Funny bloke. He's one of those guys who He's so good for your club, right? He is, he's great for the club, not only what he does on the field, but probably more importantly, what he does off the field. In terms of, he's a great guy to have around the dressing room. He'll have fun, he's a practical joker. He will, you know, and again, there might be, there's probably kids listening and all those things, but he'd do things in the dressing room, which you'd frown upon now, but it was all fun, I'll just take it all in good light and all those things. So he was just one of those guys that, was so good for the footy club and you know what he's you know i'm sure there's plenty of great stories about him but um i, I just look at the guy and i've got the utmost respect to him he actually played at the same junior club as me kenley Bale Cookers, cook, yeah. back in the day um and so but we were there was obviously a few years apart there but um just a, a champion guy who i've got the utmost respect for uh and if i could find a mick vella and put him into every dressing room of every footy team. That footy team would be so funny, laughing, happy, and just enjoying the... That is their very regular. high praise. I'm just wondering whether he should have put that down on his footy resume. <laughs> <laughs> his agents yeah. would, would, that, would that have that as a key indicator. Re reference to your material, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, not, I'm not so sure it would have done him any good going to other clubs, <laughs> but... Cause the other key component is he was a bloody pest, all right, but a good pest. Uh, um, just before we let you go, Mick, we um, just wanted to get your takes on tonight's game. So many line breaks. 
during the game. More, John, what was it? How many? What was it? The Eels had more line breaks than the Knights had points, 13 to 12. So we seem to not quite nail converting them, but it's pretty hard to be disappointed with a 43 to 12 scoreline in the end. From a coach's perspective, what do you think the uh, feedback's going to be from um, Brad Arthur to the team after that performance? I'll say this. I, I think going back to the start of the game, and I, you know, I was up in the uh, Lees Club box here, and people asking, what do you think? And I was extremely confident tonight for Parramatta. I felt it was a game where Newcastle on the back of two really close performances, they're not a side that can back up and two strong performances, which they didn't get rewarded for. They had two, two close losses, right? So I look at that and I go, you know what? They're not a side that can back up. Parramatta need to actually win and dominate here today because they're in a position where it could have possibly been three wins, six losses. And that would have made making the finals extremely hard. So this was a must-win game. And they came out from the start with that attitude, and you could see... And Newcastle were down, clearly. They were physically, they were exhausted right after what had happened in the last two weeks. So looking back, looking back on that, I think Brad Arthur will be extremely happy for a couple of reasons. A, the number of line breaks. B, he'll be disappointed in the fact that they didn't finish them off. But you know what? You can't finish them all off. You've, you've scored 43 points. Defensively, um, they kept them to 12 points. And that's probably been the difference for Parramatta earlier on in the season. They were scoring points, but they were conceding more. Anytime you score 24, 26 points, it should be enough to win a game. Right? But it wasn't, unfortunately, for Parramatta against the Sharks. Um, and, and, you know, those games are pivotal when you're looking at your season. So he'll be happy with the result. He'll be happy with the performance. He'll also know that they've got work to do. And, you know, they need to finish off because you're not going to make 13 line breaks against most teams in this competition. Yeah. If you get to make four or five line, line breaks, if you can capitalise on three of them, you're going to put yourself in a good chance of winning the game. They did a fairly good job of dismantling uh, Ponga tonight as well. Like, defensively, he was just... 11 was missed tackles, 10 made tackles. Yeah, rough day. Yeah, it was a tough day for Ponga. And you know what? The fact of the matter is, you get at a player like that, he's going to have days, unfortunately, like that. Okay, and... Uh, you know, that happens to halves at various stages throughout their career. And that's a game he's going to want to put behind him. I can assure you next week he won't be missing 11 tackles. But the one thing I did like about it was it was obviously a game plan to get at him. And they didn't get away from that. They persisted and they kept getting at him, which I think is important because it's easy to, you know, have a game plan. It works a couple of times. Score a few tries. And then you think... Mm -hmm. You know, you can start doing all these other things. Yep. They kept going, they kept going, and they kept getting results on the back of that. And it was just smart footy. Didn't have to change anything they were doing, and they got the result. As a, as a former 5'8", what's your takes on Parramatta's halves pairing of Moses and Brown? I thought Moses was outstanding. He made plenty of line breaks. I think his control was very good. Dylan Brown, I think he has now started to... Um, he had a slow start to the season, no doubt about that. I think he's starting to get a lot more confidence back. And I think that's on the back of Sean Lane being outside him. I think it creates a lot of options and makes Dylan Brown look a lot sharper. 
out and crisper in terms of what he's able to do. Sean Lane's a big human who's going to attract defenders, which then can open up things for Dylan Brown on his own. He could use he can use Sean Lane because he's got that ability to offload Sean Lane. Dylan Brown can wrap around. Again, there's so many options in and around what Sean Lane has had to offer. So I look at that and I go, that's a real positive. Together, I think they've got a good combination. I think they need to keep building on what they've got. They had a great season last year, right? And they can get back to any sort of form that they had last year on a consistent basis. Then Parramatta will start to win more games, which ultimately is what we want them to do. Where does Clint Gutherson sit when you compare him to, say, the fullbacks that you've played with? Because you, you've, you've played with some pretty good fullbacks in your time. Yeah, you know, I've been. You know what? He's a. He's a very good fullback. And you know what? He, he probably reminds me of, you know, like a Dylan Edwards and his value to... What Dylan Edwards' value to Penrith is, yep. is similar to what Gutherson's. He, he's not going to get the headlines like a Latrell Mitchell, like a Reese Walsh. You know... Yes! That, keep it down, eh? <laughs> <laughs> but he's not going to get those uh, headlines. But, he, you know, don't get me wrong, he does get the headlines, but... It's the subtle things he does that is so important. And it's probably it's so important to his teammates. And I think that's the key for what uh, Clint Gutherson offers his team. He leads from the front. He doesn't leave anything out there at all. He comes off absolutely exhausted because he puts it all on the line each and every week. A lot's been made of the parity of the competition so far, just over two months in. Are you enjoying the product of the NRL this year more than recent years? Or how's it travelling for you? I'm enjoying the contest. That's what I'm loving about the game at the moment. It's the contest, the fact that tonight's game was a blowout, but we've had very few blowouts, right? It's been games where I think six of the eight games last weekend went down to the last five minutes, okay? Fans that are in tipping contests know, know, yeah. yeah, yeah. know how bloody hard it is yeah. <laughs> to pick week in, week out, and to consistently get five or six tips. Right, if you're getting four, you're probably happy. Yeah. Right, and that's that's an indication of a comp that is so close. And you know what? It's probably the team that can be consistent in their approach. And this is what gives me hope about Parramatta is they get some sort of consistency. You get three or four games in a row, it suddenly takes you to a whole different level in terms of the competition table. Well said. So it's important that they do that. Um, and you see, you know, the good teams have got that ability. They're going to leave themselves in the contest. And if we get to the, uh, the finals, which I'm confident we will, then it becomes a whole different ball game and we've got the cattle there to be able to do it. Well, Michael, I'm, I'm conscious of the time here, mate. We really appreciate the time that you've given us tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, if you could give a round of applause and some thank you to Michael Butner. Thank you, folks. Appreciate it. And we're back with the magic of morning after recording 60s. What a fantastic chat with uh, Michael there. Tremendous player, tremendous eel, tremendous post-career as well. Uh, absolutely wonderful bloke. And really, you, you can see how good he is in the microphone, can't you? Oh, the the media background as well obviously comes in there. Very articulate bloke. Just, yeah, great to have a chat with him, not just during the podcast, but for the little while we chatted after we finished up last night. 
so many things we would have loved to have spoken to him about, but we were obviously conscious of the time and, and, and wanting to get into some reactions from the game. So that's why we're back this morning. We've got a few more takes that we wanted to share from the game. So let's jump into it, mate. Yes. So let's do the form breakdown 60s, Parramatta Eels 43 defeating Newcastle Knights 12 round nine out of Combank stadium in fine conditions for the Eels. Dylan Brown started the scoring. You got that one, right? Uh, with Quentin Gufferson bagging, a fi- I believe it was his first career hat trick. It um, should have been. It should have been at least a double. <laughs> it, should, brace, it could have been it? almost did the Nigel Vunkin. I start counting to get the two hands there. He could have had yeah. a five or six pretty comfortably in, in another day. Uh, but joining him on the scorer sheet, Mitch Moses, Sean Russell, and Junior Balor. Big man getting over in the 69th minute. Uh, Mitch Moses having a perfect night of kicking. He didn't look like missing him, did he? Sixties. Seven no, from, he was just striking them sweetly last mm-hmm. night. Seven from seven for try conversions, tacked on a disrespectful field goal in the 79th minute, which led to some bizarre scenes where the Newcastle Knights did not want to restart the football game with five seconds left on the clock. Uh, we can talk about that later. But uh, for the Knights, Matt Croker got over in the sixth minute on a grubber kick. Dom Young in the 62nd minute of a nice little work play down their right side. Lockie Miller, two from two off the tee. Go through the stats very quickly, 60s. Uh, this one was really interesting because uh, time and possession relatively, or possession and time possession relatively even, Eels only 53% in the advantage there, uh, plus two and a half minutes in time of possession. So they really just made a lot more advantageous play when it came to holding the ball. Speaking of holding the ball, neither team did a great job last night. This is one of the most bizarre games I've seen. Uh, 67% completion rate for the Eels, which would usually mean that we're in all sorts of dire straits. Uh, but not this game. Uh, Knights at 64%. I, and I will posit 60s that of those 33% of incompleted sets, maybe 25, 30% could have been tries. Each each set, it was, it was just a ridiculous game. Uh, in terms of attacking stats, well, Eels up plus 33 on the scoreboard, and uh, 31 on the scoreboard, sorry, and up in all key attacking stats. Uh, they're plus 40 on the meters, uh, sorry, on the runs, plus 600 on the meters, uh, plus 50 post-contact, 13 line breaks to three. The Eels had more line breaks than the Knights had point sixties. Like, what a yeah, weird game. And, and it was nearly double figure for the first half, wasn't it, mm. in terms of there was, line breaks? There was breaks. a stat that uh, the most line breaks in, the, in a game this year, 10. Um, Parramatta line breaks at halftime, 10. So they, uh, they didn't quite go for the throat as much as they could have in the second half, but still put on an absurd amount of line breaks. Both teams breaking tackles in this game. 61 for the Eels, 46 for the Knights, which really, we spoke about this in the wake of the game. It was one of those ones where, geez, the I know that Greg Mars who had some good runs and whatnot, but it just didn't feel like the Knights broke that many tackles. Yeah, yeah. It, it was, you know what I, I think it was? It was the the scramble was really effective. So Yeah, down, I, Mitch Mose down the right edge, did a great job on yeah, that. And, yeah, uh, I, think there were, I think there were tackles that, were counted as misses where someone fell out of the tackle, so it was down as maybe an individual miss. But there was never a threat of it being an actual yeah. big run. Because I don't know about you, but like sitting there in the stands last night, I never felt that our line was really being threatened, that even when it was getting out to some of the known tackle breakers yeah. for the Knights, that if, as I said, if, if one person was fell off the tackle, say, in a two- or three-person tackle, the, the the tackle was still completed. So uh, I guess 
the stat that you'd look at there is the line breaks because the Knights only come up with the three line breaks. And I think that's probably a reflection of missed tackles and more the, than what that big number is. And to give you an indication just how bizarre land this game was, the Eels won the play of the ball 60s. 355, the 374 of Newcastle. So, uh, you know, 0.2 of a second quicker, which is, you know, revelatory stuff here. Uh, but you talk about those tackle breaks. Interestingly, the Eels still at 86% effective tackle rate despite all those tackle busts. Newcastle down at 80% for them. So pretty ordinary night at the office for them. For Eels, 86% is probably below par, but not anywhere near as bad as you'd think given that they gave up nearly 50 tackle busts. So like you said, uh, not not a bad defensive performance by any means. Uh, and then we go on to individual player stats where some surprising names popped off because i got to say, Sixies, when we saw the late mail, we knew there was going to be no reg. But then Ryan Madison's ruled out with a stomach bug and you're like, oh my goodness, the, the night's going to get us. They're playing some good football. Eels are well down on troops. Uh, had a you know a real rough time up in Darwin, uh, but I got to say we know that it's not the week after Darwin where the Eels struggle. It's going to be the week after that. So two weeks after, so the fortnight. And true to form, they bounce back here with. Uh, there are. Uh, I'm just going to look here. Yeah, there are four players who didn't get past 100 meters. Two of those players were in the 90s. So, uh, and there were. <laughs> More players close to 200 than anything else. Just a huge effort. Quinton Gufferson, 192 metres. Uh, Mike Acevo had a big day, 160. Will Penasini, 180. Russell, 136. Dunster, 108. So one of the best nights for the back line this year. But then the halves, the half 60s. Dill Brown went for nearly 200. Mitchell Moses went for 170. Uh, and then you get to probably the biggest stars of the night in terms of uh, the, the smallest uh, status but the biggest performers. Makatoa, 194. Ogden, 148. Uh, and then you got Jermaine Hopgood, 172. So all the all the forwards stepping up, but some of the, uh, you know, the guys that have been probably underperforming in terms of reserve grade and whatnot, but they took their chance tonight, and that's what you want to see. Yeah, that's right. And I, I was particularly impressed by just the... It was like a combination of the mobility... And the aggressing aggression in the runs of Makatoa and Ogden, it, they just seemed to be like absolutely free striding as they were running up to. Look, I think we can say that there were times when that Newcastle defence was quite passive, but you know it really came about by the fact that the the Eels were aggressive in their carries all night and. It just became too much for a Knights team that, well, their coach said that they they need a break, that it's been a long run. Well, I'll tell you what, I wouldn't say the Eels have had it easy in terms of the opponents or the schedule or any anything like that. So, Travel, turnarounds, opponents, opponents coming off buys. The Eels have had a nightmare start to 2023. And, and yeah, you've got to give credit to the team and, and the coach and the support staff and the football staff no one's been an excuse. You know, the fact that we're not back at, the fact that we're four and five after our nine rounds, everyone says that's on us. You know, and that's right. So I know Adam O'Brien, he's been on a hot seat for a while, and this will be a loss that stings because Newcastle have had a promising start to the season, but it feels like it's unraveling now, doesn't it? It feels like there was the, 
that the flaws in the team were exposed in a big way last night. It was obvious that a a, a big part of the match plan was dismantling Kalen Ponga, and he was exposed as a uh, as a defensive liability in the five eight position last night. Yeah, well, just speaking of, I saw a stat in the post game, and we mentioned it when we're talking to Mike Mutner as well, but. He made 10 tackles and missed 11 60s. Like, ugh. That is a... Yeah. What's his, they've updated him for... NRL.com's updated him for 13 tackles, 8 missed, 2 ineffective. But uh, I suppose it depends on whose metrics you're taking because I think that might have been a different uh, stat keeper that I saw that <clears throat> number posted on last night. Yeah. So, uh, really, anyone that was a, a strike player for the Knights just never got out of first gear it, either. I mean, certainly not in attack. And, you know, the, it was just so critical, the, the missed tackles that Newcastle made. Now, we talk, uh, when I was speaking before about it, it never felt like the Eels line was really threatened as such, despite what seemed like a large number of missed tackles. In contrast... The Knights looked like they were going to snap, uh, that their line was going to be snapped at any stage through the game. It was just, at one stage in that first half, it felt like that every two or three minutes or every, maybe every set of possession, the Parramatta was going to break their line. And we were, we were moaning about the number of points that were left out there on the field in that first half. But my goodness, it was entertaining. There was plenty. You got, to you got get your money's worth in terms of yeah, up. cheering and 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 complaining and whatnot. Like I said, one of the more bizarre games you'll ever see. And yeah, it just felt like that right edge. Any time, whether it was Moses Cartwright or Penasini, they just ran the ball. Something was cooking. It was crazy. You know, Ponga's going to have nightmares about Moses and Cartwright. I mean, Brabham Best is going to check under his bed for Will Penasini moving forwards. You know that that's yeah. how bad it was for him. So, right edge running wild. And it was that weird situation where the Eels scored 40-plus points, could have scored another 40 points. And legitimately, Mike Acevo might not have, like, would not have featured any of them. Like, yeah. if you had that, and obviously <laughs> uh, a member of TCT that got done pretty dirty by that, but uh, uh, if you had the Eels scoring 43, probably could have scored another 30 or 40 points, and Mike Acevo not featuring for any of them, which is legitimately the case last night. Yeah, what a, like I said, what a weird game. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. I'll tell you the stat that I'm amazed by. I'm amazed by the fact that Wiramu Greg's only credited with 58 post-contact Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit iffy on these numbers because they've got Cartwright down for, hang on, how many metres they've got Carty down for? 91. Yeah, and it felt like he had about five line breaks that game. So, I, yeah. I don't I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it, well, we know that he, he, he must have... Run about thirty meters for that that run where the Guffo no uh, try, Gutho, yes. yeah, the no, the no try there. So, what's doing there, Guffo? You could have had five, rubber five. Yeah, uh, but yeah. Guffo, another very good game for our captain and fullback too. Um, you know, it's it's not often you get to bemoan him. You know, missing uh, five tries and still scoring for like you know missing five tries overall, but scoring three. So. I suppose yeah. let, let's talk about some of the you know concerns coming out of this game sixties because Eels did get loose and uh, like like we've been discussing it's 
they won easy but could have you know gone away in a in a massive swing of four and against but uh individually um Sean Russell he had a a tough matchup against Dan Gagai he got beaten a couple of times uh where the cover defense saved him and that's why you have cover defense uh how how do you think he's handling that transition to center given that he's played some pretty good opponents so far I think and I I suspect I know where this is going that the the next point of concern is Hayes is is struggling with hitting top pace with mm. his with in especially when it comes to being able to keep up in support and I, I do want to stress that when you're critical of Hayes this isn't an attack on him this is a player that is literally 12 months out from one of the most devastating injuries you're going to have in rugby league he, oh, we're talking about a physical limitation. That's right. He And he is still putting his hand up and he is still busting his gut out there. I mean, I spoke to you last night about the 60s when he was actually in the area to make a play defensively or offensively. He was doing good things. Some great oh. tackles, some really strong carries. But it is the, the poor man is clearly short. Uh, you know, he's top gear uh, when it comes to just being able to back up Will Penasini. I thought that last night his defensive plays and he's only credited with six tackles and it felt like there was more there were more tackles than that it must have just been that every one of those six tackles count. was critical yeah. were, you know were counted but i think as well it it was his defensive positioning that was outstanding last night so I, i'm i'm full of praise for him on on his defensive output last night which might seem strange of six tackles but yeah, it was like every one of those tackles counted. Yeah, Dom but Young come cross field at one point and he cut him down. So, this some yeah. really good stuff. But yeah, yeah just... but it's but we're we're talking about the the physical limitations of not being able to hit the top pace that he used to be able to hit. And so, what I'm thinking is is likely to happen. And this is just my you know how I think it will play out is the Bailey Simonson will come back in into the centres this week and Sean will push out to the wing because uh, as you as you mentioned it was it was a real mixed bag for Sean last night because he had uh he was credited with seven missed tackles and um and as you said there was good cover defense and we spoke about that as well because it the line breaks weren't on because the cover tackles were there or or you know he might have fallen fallen off on a tackle when there was plenty of other players around so it didn't really impact what transpired out there but you can't afford to have those numbers of missed tackles out there so he's got a bit more pace than than uh, what Hayes does at this stage and we might be another 12 months before Hayes can get back to anywhere near the the pace yeah, that he has for you know those ACL isolated ACL recoveries tend to be in the 18th month vicinity when you see players getting back to their full capacity you think back to Guffo from 2017 to getting back through probably 2019 60s he did a late 2017 ACL uh, obviously the Eels weren't that great in 2018 Guffo back to his best in 2019 Mike Acevo, uh, you know he had a struggle for, a, for most of a season until he got back to his best Hayes didn't just do his ACL, but it was the MCL and uh, PCL, I believe, as well. So, yeah. you know, just an absolutely nightmare injury there. And to his credit, he is soldiering through it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. it was with a decision to make in the back line. And then, so yeah, yeah, it's it's um, 
and and I know like we've we've got some things that we're going to talk about right now that are the negatives, but I think apart from um, those issues, we're maybe talk, starting to talk about some coaching points that BA is going to be able to take out of this game. So um, yeah, let's let's push on with those with those takes, John. So what else is your concerns from coming out of last night? It's yeah, it's still going to be tough sledding without Reagan Campbell Gillard. Uh, but yeah. I think that we talked about you know injury making opportunity for other players. I think to a large degree those three other four, like prop forwards, uh, Wiramu, Makatoa, Makahesi, and uh, Ofiki Ogden put their hands up, but I suppose the question mark is still out given how inept, how allergic the tackling Newcastle were uh, in terms of other opposition. So I, I suppose the concern there for me mostly wasn't the effort and wasn't the work rate, but uh, there was you know some drops here or there, uh, and they weren't asked much asked of much defensively. You know, for whatever reason, Newcastle Knights uh, weren't able to really string together anything last night, and... You know, against a different opposition, maybe the Eels would have been... Te- or maybe maybe he's very uh, kind there. The Eels probably would have been tested uh, a lot more through the middle. Yeah, look, I I can't argue with that. What I suggest is that those particular players that you just mentioned have set a benchmark for themselves based on that performance. Correct. So that what BA can now do is he can, when they're doing the video review and when he's sitting down with players individually or any of the coaches are sitting with the players individually and they can say, look at what you're doing here. Look at these stats that that you've returned as well. This is your benchmark. This is what you are capable of doing. Now, if, if those players... And granted, I said to you that there were times when the Newcastle defence was far too passive. However, if you have blokes carrying the ball in the manner that they were last night, maybe they're not going to get up to the near 200 metres in a game against one of the better opponents. However, they are going to produce a better result than what we saw in the first half last week against the Broncos because what we witnessed was the complete opposite of that. We witnessed the Eels being passive. Mm-hmm. Agreed. We, we, we witnessed them going nowhere near winning the middle last week. So the positive that I take out of it is that, yeah, the, the opponent wasn't as strong as some of the opponents that we faced through the early runs this year. But you know what? All of the all of the teams get their shot at these opponents that aren't going so so great. And you know what? The Knights took it to Penrith the other week. And Penrith were, copped plenty of praise for being able to manufacture a win against the Knights when they when it was said, oh, well, Penrith weren't at their best that night. Well, you know what? The Knights weren't at their best tonight, and Parramatta just... Uh, the, um, well, it's now last night. <laughs> and Parramatta's just thumped them and, and probably left as many points on the park as what they actually scored. Um, and yes, there's a negative you can take out of that, but there, I think there's also a positive that some of these individuals 
set a standard for themselves that BA is going to be expecting them to to reproduce, if not in the actual meters or results, then certainly in the effort. And that's what I'd want to see from these blokes going forward. There was almost a statement made like, please don't put me back in reserve grade. Like, And, and my take on that is, look, if player availability means that you're going to end up back in New South Wales Cup, perform like you did in first grade. Like, keep reminding BA and the other coaches that you are capable of producing a high standard like that, whether you're playing in the NRL or whether you're playing in New South Wales Cup. I think that's what has to be reinforced with these players mm-hmm. because I think what we've always seen for, from all teams, uh, we're going across all teams now, um, is that when you've got someone who isn't playing regular first grade, and it might be they might be a journeyman that's uh, been around for a while and just gets the occasional first grade game, or they might be a young player coming through. Is that you can get a, a great performance like that for a, a week or two, but then getting it consistently is what separates the seasoned professional high quality NRL player from, well, I mean, we'll call them a part-time NRL player, but someone who's not getting regular first grade. That that person is capable of lifting and filling in. Um, you might hear them referred to as stocking fillers or what have you, you know, people that have to fill a place on the roster and could do a job for you when you need them or they're, as I said, the young player on the rise and they're learning their craft and learning to be more consistent. So we need these players to say, you know what, I'm more than just someone who's going to fill in for you. I want to be putting my hand up for regular consideration for first grade selection. Absolutely. And that, and that for me, is what we need to have from some of these players going forward. Now, maybe Wiramu is, is a good example for someone like Offahiki Ogden, although Ogden's been around for longer than Wiramu right, is that Wiramu's, he's building into this season, isn't he? It's like every game gets that little bit better. His his game time is increasing a little bit. We know that that conditioning is always a challenge for a big bloke like Wiramu. You can see, and we're watching it all the time, like we're now on um, interchange watch. with him like we're seeing at what point he's really gassed and waiting for the change to happen and this is whether he's starting the game or whether he's coming off the bench because we know you're going to get to a certain point but that point's getting further and further into the game isn't it into his minutes so he might have been completely gassed after you know five six minutes before and he's getting you know we were getting good minutes out of him at the start of the game last night. It helped the, you know, the flow of the game certainly helped with that. But um, I remember when, when we were talking to Murata just after he debuted in first grade and he said to us, I was glad BA only gave me like five minutes or so out in the field. He said, cause I was gassed. I was gone. Yeah. The, the speed of first grade is just on a completely different level, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. So anyway, I guess we'll see what happens come uh, team list, who gets to retain their spot. 
and who drops back to New South Wales Cup because we're going to have um, the return of Ryan Madison, we would imagine. Yeah, well, week. given that it was billed as a stomach bug, uh, much yeah. like Josh Hodgson the week before, those sort of 24-hour, be maybe longer than 24 hours in terms of the illness window, but in the context of playing in the NRL, it'll be 24 hours and then back yeah. back into the grind. So big boost for the Eels next week with Maddo back. They're going to need it because they're playing in the last game up at Sun, uh, that Suncorp, that turf falling apart as we did our post-game show 60s, having the uh, background of the uh, Broncos and Rabbitohs going at it and watching Divot City up there. I, I am concerned, but... Uh, the, the Eels have a chance to build with uh, the Gold Coast Titans being their opponents on that Sunday game. But on, on top of that as well, uh, news that was developing through the day that we'll, we'll talk to, we'll talk about in more depth with Clint later in the week, but Andrew Davey coming back to the club on the remainder of 2023 plus 2024, a boost to our forward stocks. Maybe uh, where, how he fits into the team will be interesting too because Davey obviously pretty handy on the edge. Uh, but the Eels probably short on middles right now. I know we just had a big game out of those three we spoke about, but you know, if anything were to happen to them, all of a sudden you're sort of really scratching around. So maybe the ability to give Madison more time in the middle and having another edge forward on the bench will help there. Um, but, yeah, I'm not too unhappy about seeing Davey come back. How are your feelings on that, mate? Yeah, I think he's a good depth signing because on top of everything else, we need our New South Wales Cup team to be performing better. And we need it to be that these players are, are pushing for selection in first grade. They're putting pressure on the blokes that are there. We're, that they're giving BA the right sort of selection challenges. That he's not thinking to himself, who do I... We want him thinking, oh, who's going to be the unlucky one to miss out, rather than who am I going to put in? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it, we, we have to have those sorts of selection headaches going forward. And I think it's fair to say that based on the last few weeks of New South Wales Cup, that that hasn't been the case. Not so at all, mate. It, it, when you've got someone like Andrew Davey, who we know, the one thing that he was able to produce for Parramatta before was consistency of performance. So that when he was playing first grade, you you got a pretty good standard out of him all the time. And, and when he was in New South Wales cup, it was, he, he was demanding that he be selected in first grade. And the more players that you have on your roster who are capable of doing that, who, and we can only guess that he'd be, that he hasn't cost us a lot. No, because it's been a it's I mean, not only, not only is he a, a mid-season transfer to the Eels. And half his pro rider salary is already done for the Bulldogs. Yep. Yeah. And uh, and you're talking about that there hasn't been a, a... Like the club that he's with has been quite content to let him go. Yeah. So he, he's coming home. We're probably... I mean, I, I can only surmise that we might be getting him cheaper than what it would have cost us to keep him in the first place. So it's it's interesting. Uh, I think it's always a challenge for players that they get the opportunity to go elsewhere. They get the opportunity to go on better money. Doesn't necessarily always work out that well in the long run because 
I, I wonder if he had have stayed at Parramatta on a little bit less coin than he had to go to Manly if he if maybe he would have been a regular first grade mm-hmm. player mm-hmm. in the time you know that he's been away. So um, anyway, we welcome him back. Absolutely We're glad to have him back. He's he hasn't. It hasn't looked right to see him in different colours. I know that he was he's been a late bloomer. It hasn't been like he's come through the Eels ranks or anything like that from from juniors. But I think we've we've seen the best of Andrew Davey wearing blue and gold. And let's hope there's still more of that best to come. And uh one last little bit of silver lining here, sixties. Eels still trying to chase getting back to even keel at, you know, five hundred four and five, so just one win short. But one thing they've done really well this year is keeping those losses really narrow and fitting grasp one score, four points, eight points against the Roosters, I think it was, uh, ditto against the uh, the Broncos. So nothing got out of hand. And because of that, they now sit at plus 34, for and against, which, believe it or not, is good for fifth best in the competition. And they're, they're chasing the, the competition-leading Sharks at 82. So they're not miles behind the best competition, uh, best teams in the competition right now. So that's a credit to the team for, yes, they've bled points, but they've kept it close and uh, have no blowouts has been a huge check mark for them in terms of keeping it competitive. Because when they do, you know, we're, we're talking about them finding their stride at some point. When they do start getting two, three, four wins in a row at some point in this run up ahead and they can climb the ladder, it's going to immediately put them in a position where they're going to be edging ahead of the other teams. Yes, yeah. And, yeah, and when you when you have a look at the ladder... And you go, Broncos in first place, played them. Sharks in second place, played them. We're going to be playing the Rabbitohs soon. Seagulls in fourth place, played them. Panthers in fifth place, played them. Storm in sixth place, played them. So they played five of the, of the current top six. And that, you know, that's probably uh, quite encouraging at this stage for how we look. And then if you look at um, the bottom of the table, um, yes, we played the the Tigers and the Bulldogs, but we haven't played the Cowboys, haven't played the Dragons. So it's, it's probably fair to say that the balance of the draw to this date has been that it's been tougher. So to come out with that for and against as it is now is I think we're in a good place considering we are yet to have our best football. The game against the Panthers was probably close to yeah, it. That, that was a reminder of how good this team can be. Uh, but yeah. you know, we, we've seen stretches and, and passages of play that would you know remind you of how good the Eels can be uh, outside of that, but they haven't put together a whole performance uh, worthy of their, their ceiling yet outside that pen of game. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, hey, like you said, five of the top six they've played, and yes, they lost to the Broncos, the Sharks, the Seagulls, and the Storm. But in each of those losses, they were very like narrow margins of defeat where the Hills did not play anywhere near their best. And yeah, I'm sure the other t- opposition teams would say they've got room to improve too, and that's true. But for the Eels, we know that they've got like an order of magnitude in that margin of, of improvement. So... Yeah, it's frustrating to be at four and five instead of being, you know, uh, seven and two or, or something in that, you know, sort of combination of uh, wins and losses. But yeah, we're, we're still in a position to make a run here through the origin period, which is fantastic. Absolutely. And so we we 
just as a final word on last night, we've emerged from last night with a victory against a, against a team that we were able to, I suppose, extract from them one of their worst performances of the season. But and but we're I mean, we're not getting carried away with a win like that. What we what we are is we are happy with the steps forward that were taken, both as a team and with some individuals out there. And whilst recognising that the team is nowhere near where they need to be just yet, that it was a step forward that was taken last mm-hmm. night. And whilst ever you're getting wins and taking steps forward at this time of the year, that's the main thing that matters right now. And um, there's there's a, there was a lot to like about how the team performed, how the pack performed with two big outs from that pack. So uh, onward and upward, mate. Well, before we sign off, we didn't do it last game because of uh, the frustrating nature of the loss to the Broncos, but I think this game was probably worthy of a 3-2-1. How did you score it, mate? Oh, <laughs> Maybe, maybe I was uh, almost mentally denying that I had to come up with a three-two-one because <laughs> it's, it's more challenging yes. uh, from a different perspective than it was last not, last yep. week. I mean, last week I didn't want to touch it because of uh, of what the game uh, produced. But my goodness, um, so many so many blokes that are in contention there. You know what? I probably, I should probably be giving an, a, some of the top points to the forwards because the, there was a platform that was laid there, but then the spectacular nature of what some of the um, the backs were able to, to to produce Gutho with his hat trick, Mitch Moses and Dylan Brown with their run meters and the line breaks that were associated with it. Um, gee. Look, I'm I'm probably going to give my three to Gutho. It's it's hard to go past making nine tackle breaks, 192 run meters, three tries. Yeah, I'll I'll give him my three points. What yeah, so I I can't uh, go without rewarding career nights for some of the. Lesser forwards, and I say, you know, once again, lesser, not as a derogatory term, but just guys on the pecking order, the, the lower place forwards. So my three and two go to Makahesi and Offahiki. Uh, the, the two big boys there give him a, a nod for very good games when, you know, uh, I suppose not much would have been expected of them given how the cup is travelling, but, you know, their numbers were called and they stepped up last night. Yeah. This is the real, like, this is a real challenge for me because... Uh, honestly, I've I've also got to mention Woody here. I, I'm going to give him I'm going to give him two points there because I thought that the damage that he was doing through the middle with those carries and admittedly there there wasn't as many carries as as what we had from Offahiki and um, and uh, also Makahesi. But I, I just like the way he's building into 
this season and and he was part of laying that platform in the first half. So it's, I'm going to give him my two. It's uh, three straight plus games for Makahesi for Wiramu now. So, you know, we, once again, we talk about guys taking their chances. He is actually starting to build to something now, which is really encouraging to see. Uh, my one point, well, you gave him the three. And as much as I, I'm going to write him about not getting that Pfeiffer, the Michelle Pfeiffer right there, but um, Quinton Gufferson, you know, like you said, nearly 200 metres, a whole bag of tackle busts, three tries, some great defence at the back. Again, you know, just uh, business as usual for the King. Yeah. Now, my one point, this is where I've got a challenge because somehow I've got to fit in Dylan Brown, uh, Mitch Moses, Offa Hickey Ogden, and Makahesi Makatoa. Quarter points, baby. Oh, look, I'm going to I'm gonna give it to uh, Maka with honourable mention to the other three, and I feel like an idiot for not being able to find points for them. So, um, I guess, I guess it comes down to like you know we use that usual yardstick of could you have won the game without them? This is one of those unusual games where because the Eels were so dominant, you almost feel like they could have won the game without any of the ones we've just given the points to. It was um, you know every there were so many contributions all over the park that it became that challenge. So I'm just going to have to be content with the fact that there's players that miss out on a point on my ratings. So uh, what are your thoughts on that, mate? Yeah, uh, definitely the honourable mentions are off the charts this week. Plenty of guys, wherever you've been, in the points. Uh, but when you've only got three uh, sets of votes to give out, that's just how it, uh, it breaks down sometimes. Oh, I feel like we should have a change to the rules, much like the Dally M does, yeah, well, where we, we can allocate six points for <laughs> and, go a, and go a, we'll go a six, five, two, four, three, yeah. two, one match. Well, that might be more consistent in giving out, you know, two threes and two twos and two ones, so who knows. Uh, but yeah, we might have to look at the older, uh, the TCT voting system right there, mate, so... That's a problem for another day, though. Uh, Eels, 43, defeating Newcastle Knights, 12. Eels back in the winner's charts. Love to see it. Uh, and credit to the crowd that got out for that really shitty time slot, 6 o'clock p.m. on a Friday night. Anyone working at 9 to 5 is always going to struggle there. Anyone that's got a family is going to struggle getting there, given that you're always prepping for Saturday sports and whatnot. Uh, but we... Yeah, can I also thank the people that got to Jack's Bar yeah, and Grill after the match last night? Packed out house at a... Jack's Bar and Grill. Fantastic crowd. There to hear uh, Michael Butner talk, and what a terrific guest he was. Uh, doesn't get much better than that. And yeah, it was a really good night all around on account of all oh, those things, mate, 60s. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I can't thank Paraleagues enough for really looking to keep the club as the home of the Eels. We're never going to get back to the days where you would have the current players that get back to the club. Yeah, but- times have changed in that regard, unfortunately, but... Uh, having, you know, the former greats, former legends, you know, just born gold stalwarts coming out and having a chat uh, with us and being able to interact with all the fans there is always a great sight. Yeah, and, and just making it feel like it's, like the club is all about the football on match days is, it's a really big thing. It's It's looking to rekindle that connection between the, 
the footy and the supporters and the venue there because after all the the league's club was started as a, a way of supporting the football team and and giving supporters a place to go back to as well so we're we're over the moon that we're part of what goes on at the club after matches or before matches as the case may be we've got some appearances there coming up which will be around the away games. So stand by for a bit more news on that. But once again, our thanks to everyone who who got there to Jack's Bar and Grill last night. Uh, thank you to the people who, who come and introduce themselves and say good day. Uh, we're always up for that. It's um, you know it's a, it's nice to put faces to names or, or you know just to or for the people that we do know already just to have them say g'day and, and thank us for being there. It makes our day, especially, and, you know, it's always great after a win, but it <laughs> makes our day to be able to say g'day to people. So uh, thank you again for that. Yes, indeed. And let's sign off there, mate, as always. Thanks for stopping by giving us a listen. If you do manage to catch this one before 2.30 p.m., as we record on a very dreary and uh, drizzly Saturday morning, we will be out at Leichhardt to cover the SG Ball Grand Final. Parramatta Eels, as it happens, taking on the Newcastle Knights. All four teams in action against Newcastle this week, 60s. You expect it from the senior grades, but it's always funny when a junior reps grand final lines up the same way. So Eels v Knights, it's a 2001 grudge match. Uh, two very good teams locking horns in the under-19s. Look forward to it. We'll be covering it live. We'll be talking about it in the uh, sort of wake of it. Post-match breakdown through the week. There'll be plenty to dissect. Uh, but and we'll then, try and we'll try and put in the um, any scores as they come through from the Jersey flag and New South Wales Cup into that. Yeah, right, running that as well. running as a clash, unfortunately, this week. But yeah, stay tuned for that. As always, uh, thanks for stopping by.